two flights of steps down and three flights of steps up. And it's like, I am done. I never want to see a step as long as I live and I'm standing right here. Yeah, so. So, I'm about to use a dirty word, so please just be prepared for it, okay? It's a word that I'm told I am not allowed to use, especially in church. Now, don't panic, it's not a four-letter word, it's actually a three-letter word, but it's also a word that you're not allowed to use, and especially in church. It's the word sin. And right now, one of you is thinking, oh, I'm so glad I didn't invite my friend today, because my friend would come with me and he's going to talk about sin, and we don't want to talk about sin, we want to be comforting, we want to be welcoming, we want to make sure that people don't feel uncomfortable when they come to church, so don't talk about sin. If you must, use some other word. Use a euphemism. Talk about my bad. (laughs) Or talk about my mistake. Or my disease. If you notice that the word sin has disappeared from our discussion of when when people do things wrong. There's my bad, which is wink, wink, you know. (laughs) It's my bad, you know, and we all go, yeah, yeah, we all got bad things, it's my bad. And sometimes we say, well, it was my mistake. And so a teenage girl has a fight with her boyfriend. And in fury, as she's driving down the road, she crosses the median and slams her car head on into an oncoming SUV and kills a mother and two children. And what does she say? It was my mistake. I should not have been driving with that kind of rage inside of me. It's my mistake to avoid it. The other word we often use is, it's my disease. An accountant figures out a way, and (laughs) they didn't tell people how he did this. He figured a way as he ran the, the, the finances of this massive corporation, how to take a fraction of a cent out of every transaction and put it into an account that he had, accumulating millions of dollars. And of course, it's because he had an addiction. He had an addiction to wealth, an addiction to gathering stuff. Remember that 16-year-old boy who was given a a truck he shouldn't have had? He didn't have a license. He took kids along on a ride with him, had an accident, and killed four teenagers. Do you remember what his defense was? Affluence. He was a child of affluence, and the blame belongs to his parents who spoiled him, and therefore he didn't have the value system to know that he shouldn't be doing these things. We do everything we can to avoid the word sin, because when we encounter it, we think it's only going to speak about judgment and condemnation. But when you open the Bible, you discover it speaks the truth so that God can take us to grace, so that God can take us to mercy so that God can take us to forgiveness. We're studying the Sermon on the Mount uh, for these next few weeks. And in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus did as he started was he opened the doors to the kingdom. He came to proclaim the kingdom, and he opened the doors to the kingdom to let everyone know you're welcome, you can come in. But here's how you do it. And the problem was the people he was speaking to those days were under law. And they believed that in order to gain entrance to the kingdom of God, in order to please God, you had to build up a resume of religious activity. 
so that if you ever stood before God and he said, what have you done for me? You could say, well, I've kept this law, I've kept this law, I've done that. You'd have this, this, this resume built up, your credentials, so that you could stand before God and display your credentials and maybe he'd let you into heaven. Now, I grew up in a church where that's what I believed. They never, I don't think, ever explicitly taught it. But basically, that's what they taught. It was a mainline church, just like many of you grew up in. And the basic idea was that if you want to gain access to heaven, you've got to do all of these good works. And if you do enough of them, you will impress God enough that he will let you come into heaven. Perhaps, if you've done enough to get there. The day after I accepted Christ as my Savior, I told my grandmother that I was now a child of God. And she went, Oof! Don't you dare say that. You can't know that. My grandmother, who lived her entire life in that church, who went to church faithfully every Sunday, believed that the way you gain entrance to heaven is by transforming yourself, reforming yourself, and living according to the law. It's a Presbyterian church. Some of you grew up in a Methodist church. Some of you grew up in Catholic church. And we grew up with this thing where if you want to gain access into God's family, you have got to do it. And what Jesus did in the Sermon Mount is he just said, let me flip it upside down. He took that whole religious value system and he flipped it completely upside down. And I call this section called the Beatitudes, I call it the character traits of an apprentice of Jesus. Because what Jesus did is he did the unexpected. He starts by saying the word blessed. And what if he'd hesitated and not gone on? What would they have filled in the blank with? If he'd said blessed, and the word blessed means makarios, the most wonderful thing that God could give to you. Blessed, and he left it hanging. They'd have gone, blessed are those who keep the law. Blessed are those who are religious. Blessed are those who desperately try to make themselves accessible to God. How would you fill in the blank? How would our culture fill in the blanks? Blessed are those who marry a wealthy person. Blessed are those who can eat whatever they want and never get fat. <laughs> Blessed are those who get everything they want in life. We've got all kinds of ways we would fill in. If Jesus had just said blessed, they'd have filled it in with religion. We fill it in with lots of things. But what Jesus does with the, what we call the Beatitudes is he describes to us the kind of person who enters the kingdom of God and who lives within the kingdom of God. And the first four describe the salvation process. It's a both-and thing. It's how you become a child of God, but it's also how you live as a child of God. And the blessed, blessedness starts with that. So we, we read in Matthew 5, Now when he saw the crowds, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. His apprentices came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed. Now, I translated disciples, the word apprentice, because it's a better word in our day and age to understand what an apprentice is. An apprentice is someone who allies himself to a master and learns everything the master knows. His knowledge, his skills, and if he really wants to, becomes just like his master. And that's what Jesus was calling them to be and us. He wants us to know everything we need to know. He wants us to develop his skills in reaching and touching the lives of other people. And his ultimate goal is that we'll become just like him, ultimately. Do you want to know what the mission of Menlock Church is? More and more people becoming more and more like Jesus. 
anybody asks you, what's Meadowlark about? It's about more and more people becoming more and more like Jesus. That's just sort of a summary of what I believe God wants for us. So, when he said blessed, their ears perked up. Because it was a word that, and, and by the way, we'll see in just a little while, what, if he was speaking Aramaic at the time, he used a word that was parallel to the Greek word makarios. If he was, he was probably speaking Aramaic, but their, their ears would have pricked up immediately because this ultimately was where, where they understood God would come into your life and fill your life with every possible thing. How do I become a blessed person? So read with me, if you would. I hope you can see it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm using a diamond because it helps me to understand how these uh, beatitudes are, can, can be, can be uh, organized. It's my way of organizing them. Of course, it's perfect, but anyway, we'll, we'll just let you come with me, okay? The first Beatitudes describe a receptive heart, how Jesus gets access to us, how Jesus comes into our lives. Then the next set describe how we reflect his life out to the world. A diamond captures light, then reflects and refracts it and sends its beauty out into the world. And so the first ones describe how Jesus gets access and keeps getting access to our life. The interesting thing about these is they're not sequential and then they're over. They're part of our lives always. You'll find that you will always be going through poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, hunger and thirsting for righteousness. That's a normal part of the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. And as you do that, he gains access to your heart. And then you become reflective of him. You become merciful like him. You become pure in heart. You become a peacemaker. You become someone who will be hated for holiness. You'll be persecuted for righteousness. And so that's how I understand what the Beatitudes are doing. They're showing how Jesus gains full access to us and then how he reflects out of us. And the first ones, the poor in spirit, the mourn, are really clear as part of the salvation. In order for us to become children of God, we have to recognize that we're poor in spirit and mourning comes along with it. It doesn't come immediately always, but it comes along with it. So we're going to talk today about blessed are those who mourn. Now think about it. He's speaking to his, 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 his uh, what do they call it, apprentices, <laughs> right here with him. And the crowd is listening in. This is a world full of mourning. Children died really young. People suffered from unbelievable diseases. They suffered from all kinds of, of difficulties in life. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. And they'd be going, what? Blessed are those who mourn? Are you kidding? That can't possibly be a blessing. And what we discover as we're studying these is that Jesus flips these, these values upside down and reveals something there that we could never have seen had he not flipped them upside down. And part of the problem why we don't see them as values is because we've come, become so used to living upside down. We live in a world where the values of God and the values of life have all been flipped upside down, and we consider them to be right side up. Jesus said, nope, they're not. 
Let me flip them over. So let me go back to poor in spirit. Poor in spirit doesn't mean blessed are those who are worms. Blessed are those who beat themselves up. Blessed are those who think that they're worthless. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about us coming before God and suddenly realize, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I don't have a resume that will earn a place in heaven. I don't have the credentials to enter heaven. The problem is all of us grow up thinking we do. We all think that, you know, if, if, I, if God put me on the line, oh, no, no, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. And the problem is, the standard is perfection. Jesus will say it later on in the Sermon on the Mount. When they finally got frustrated enough with him, he could read their minds and they were going, how good must we be? And his answer was, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So if you want credentials that will gain you access to heaven, you've got to be perfect as God is perfect. And none of us can do that. So being poor in spirit is the recognition, I can't buy my way into heaven. I can't earn my way into heaven. God help me. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how you gain access. Because first of all, you have to realize you need me. And of course, we have the rest of the New Testament to fill it in. That Jesus took the punishment for our sins on the cross so God can forgive us and he can bring us into his kingdom. But an awareness that I need Jesus is the first step. Then this one is the rational. It's got emotion in it, but it's the rational next step. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the most incredible thing God could give us. The kingdom of heaven, forever, eternal, starting right now and going into eternity. You will forever live in the kingdom of heaven where God will give you every single blessing, everything that people long for, hunger for, and want in life. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So we have to figure out, well, what does it mean to mourn? It does not mean being perpetually morose. Or groveling in self-pity, okay? If you look back in history, you'll find that the church got it wrong. They believed that happiness is not allowed in church. They believed that joy is not allowed in, in church. And they believed that, that the truly spiritual people are morose and narrow. And, you know, always, I, one of the pastors that I was around, it was kind of like, wow, you look like you get up every morning and you carry a, a lime in your pocket and you suck on it all the time. <laughs> he was so stern and so miserable. It was like, ah, oh, but that's the model, he thought. This is, you know, if you're going to be spiritual, you're going to be like me, always complaining, always being bitter, always being angry. It just, that was his temperament. It had nothing to do with his spirituality. By the way, just a little side thought. Many of us choose our theology not on the basis of thought, but on the, pace, on the basis of our wiring, of our internal wiring. And that's a really interesting thing. You watch some people, and they move toward a certain kind of theology simply because that's the kind of person they are, and they finally find something that agrees with them, and they'll lock into it. That's another sermon. I'll come back to it. All right. Mourning is not being perpetually morose. That's not what Jesus is speaking about. He's speak, or does it mean groveling in self-pity? He's speaking about the reality that all of us are going to encounter things in this world that are going to cause us grief. And he says, and what I'm saying is blessed is that when you come to me, I then can comfort you. That's first meaning, and its primary meaning in this setting is that it is grieving over my personal bankruptcy and sin. Now, I don't know if you remember when you first became a believer in Jesus Christ. 
the chances are you were, you were not fully affair, aware of all your sinfulness. No, you weren't. All you had perhaps was just a hint that I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. Okay? So mourning over sin is, is just that sensation first that, oi, my sin is keeping me out of God's family. My sin means I can't get into the kingdom of heaven. It's at least that first awareness. And the reason why I say this is a, becomes a normal part of our lives, you and I will never get to the place where we're rich in spirit, where I can say to God, <laughs> I've learned it all. I've figured it out. And I am living a perfect life before you. Even Paul said, man, the things I don't want to do, those I do. And the things I should be doing, I don't do them. What a wretched man I am. If the apostle Paul was still poor in spirit, Raymond's got a long way to go. And grieving over my personal bankruptcy and sin is something that grows over time. The longer you live with the Lord, the more you walk with Him, the more you become sensitive to things you were never sensitive about before. There's just these sins that show up inside of you. And, you know, the lady in front of you at, the, at Costco is sitting in her car, and instead of filling the car with gas, she's on the phone, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and then you realize, wait a minute, you're, 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 gas, you're not putting gas in your car. What are you doing? And she sits there and yaks on the phone until she finally gets out. And Raymond goes, I start the engine. Wait till she steps outside of her door, and I'm going to wipe her out. And you think, Raymond, you're not like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I sit back there fuming with anger. And a sin shows up. God says, huh, self-righteous, are you? Hmm. Where do you have to be in such a hurry? You know? Oh. So the point is, we, 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 the mourning means we grieve over our personal spiritual bankruptcy and sin. And it keeps showing up in our lives over time. But God has got a way that he has provided for us to be comforted, and it's called forgiveness. John says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the comfort, that we go before God and we confess. And by the way, to confess means you own up. You don't excuse yourself. You don't do verbal doodling. You say, God, this is what I've done, and this is wrong. Verbal doodling, by the way, is when somebody comes to you and says, if I've done something wrong to you, I ask your forgiveness. It's like, <clears throat> that's not a confession. That's just verbal doodling. That's somebody being pious. If I have done something wrong. I was in a church meeting where the, <laughs> where the chairman of the elders stood up and he said, now the elders have sinned. And one of the men in the congregation stood up and said, uh, what did you do? And he said, no, well, we the angers, old elders have sinned in this. He said, I know you said that. What exactly did you do? And of course, he was not about to confess what they did wrong. Instead, he wanted to be pious. I'm a sinner like the rest of you. So when we go before God, confession means if God says it is wrong, if God says it is sin, I agree with him. It is sin. And I don't excuse myself. I don't find any ins and outs to it. I just simply accept the fact that, yes, this is sin. And I own it before you right now. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, which is what most of us do uh, in life. The truth is not it. If we confess our sins, watch this. He is faithful, which means he will do it. 
he will forgive us. If he said he will forgive us, he will do it. How can he do it? Because he's, he's just. He punished our sins when Jesus was nailed to that cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the full punishment for the sins of all people, including you and me, so that God can justly forgive us because the punishment has been taken. And then he purifies us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that incredible? All wiped out, purifies us. Now, understand, sometimes there are consequences which we have to deal with. But that doesn't mean we're not forgiven. We have to go deal with those consequences, perhaps, but the forgiveness before God is done. Psalm 103 says, He removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Completely removes. When we confess our sins, God can purify us from all unrighteousness. And so mourning, in its first and initial and primary impact, I believe, is when we mourn over our particular personal sin. But there's also another level to mourning, and it's revealed when Jesus... Uh, preached Isaiah chapter 61. Actually, he quoted Isaiah 61. It's in Luke 4. And when he quoted Isaiah 61, he revealed to us the whole spirit of our Messiah. He said this, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion. The people who were grieving in Zion were people who were grieving over what had happened to their country as a result of the uh, rebellion of their forefathers. And the people who were grieving in Zion were suffering now the, the, the after effects, the fallout, the things that accompany the sin and rebellion. And he said, and I've come to, to, to provide, uh, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. That's what he wants to do with sin. He wants to come in and just flip it over and take us to that place of release and of joy and, and of, of wonder. Uh, it's Psalm 130 says this, and it's, it's a psalm that, that just helped me so much one day. It said, Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. And so he forgives us for our personal sin. But then we live in a world that's been broken, and we ourselves are broken. And we live in a world that, of brokenness, and I believe that his comforting talks about that, that when we grieve about sin's attendance, like brokenness and death and disease and murder and war and rape and poverty and injustice, that a lot of that, as you become a follower of Jesus Christ, a lot of that you become more and more aware of. You suddenly become more alert to the fact that there's a lot of immorality going on in the world and you become aware of brokenness in our own lives. Carl Eidelman has written a great book. I suggest it to you. The end of Jesus, the end of me, is the beginning of Jesus in my life. And he quotes, um, let me find her name, Brene Brown. She did a TED Talk. Have you ever watched TED Talks? They're amazing. <laughs> the only thing is don't time them, okay? They're short. Don't come in here and say, all right, Raymond, we want to see you do TED Talk sermons, okay? <laughs> Ten minutes and you're out of here. She says this, and this has been seen by 15 million people. She says, the truth is, most of us are just one paycheck, one divorce, one drug-addicted kid, one mental health diagnosis, one serious illness, one sexual assault, one drinking binge, one night of unprotected sex, or one affair away from being those people, the ones that bad things happen 
there's a brokenness inside of us that could easily tip us over into some place where we suffer that kind of, of, of brokenness in our own lives and in the lives of other people around us. I just recently encountered a form of brokenness and of, of sorrow and of grief that I've always just cruised right by. Let me read it to you, okay? Think of miscarriages. Somewhere between 20 and 50% of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. And some may think, ah, oh, well, that's too bad, but that's life. And you'll probably be able to get pregnant again. I, I just hope, <laughs> in my past, I didn't say something stupid like that, but I know that's my wiring. That's the sort of stupid thing I'd have said. To the woman who miscarries, however, it's not that simple. She has suffered the loss of a baby. Those of us who even notice sometimes try to comfort her by pointing out that it is sometimes God's merciful way of preventing a deformed child from being born. And studies have shown that more than 50% of miscarried fetus, fetuses have genetic defects. But what kind of comfort is that? The fact that deformity and death occur at all is a tragic part of the legacy that sin has left us. We live in a broken world and there's going to be brokenness all around us. Ernest Hemingway was once in a bar. <laughs> Strange place for him to be, hey? <laughs> and in the middle of a debate with people, someone bet him that he couldn't come up with a short story only six words long. He thought for a while, pulled out a napkin, and wrote the following story on it. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. Wow. And so that's, that's one of those forms of brokenness that's around us so often in this life. And it's like, oh. And Jesus said, I've come, and those who mourn, I've come to comfort you. It's interesting that all three persons of the triune God are called comforters. God the Father is the God of all comfort. Jesus says, I will comfort you. And the Spirit is called the comforter. And so God knows we live in a broken world, and brokenness is going to come into our life one way or another, somewhere along the line. And it doesn't take him by surprise. He's prepared for it. And he wants us to let him in. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He will comfort us with forgiveness for our sins. And he will comfort us by giving us hope and giving us strength and giving us himself. Here's the point. He gives us himself. And when you think about it, often in life, the reason we get closer to God is not because we're sitting at the beach and watching the sun. It's because in our times of difficulty, our times of trouble, we find getting closer to God. And that's one of the greatest comforts is that we have the God of all comfort coming closer to us because now we let him have that kind of access. But see, we don't like to mourn. We do everything we can not to mourn. We do everything we can to keep away anything that could cause mourning. And once we're in mourning, we do everything we can not to feel it. Go to an African funeral and you will find that the people there wail at the loss of their loved one. They cry out loud. If somebody dares to do that in one of our funerals, we go, oh, she's not in her right mind. Take her out of here. Isn't that true? We're terrified of somebody who would actually mourn out loud for their loss in their lives. And Jesus says, no. There are going to be times in life, whether you like it or not, that you are going to mourn. And I will be there to comfort you if you will let me in. And comforting means I can begin again. 
there's an incredible psalm. I'm just going to go through it really quickly. This, this deserves a whole sermon of its own. But David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he had her husband murdered to cover up his crime. And then he was confronted by a prophet that God sent to him who told him, you are that man. You're that man who stole a little lamb that belonged to another man. And David broke before God. And he wrote a series of psalms. He wrote Psalm 51. You read Psalm 51, that's his confession before God. He wrote Psalm 50, 38, which described, I'm, I'm in the middle, Lord. I've asked for forgiveness. I don't feel it yet. Then he got to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a psalm written by a man who has accepted God's forgiveness. And he uses strange word, blessed. Here's the Aramaic word that Jesus may have spoken, the equivalent of makarios. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He mounts words up. Transgression. A transgression means to go where you're not allowed to go. A sin means to miss the perfection of God. And deceit is the internal thing where we lie to ourselves about what we have done. Blessed is, he says, and he's now writing from the experience on the other side of forgiveness, of finally having accepted God's forgiveness. He said, when I kept silent, hang on, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. What's interesting, at this point, God steps in. <laughs> David's been speaking, and suddenly God seems to step in, and he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. I don't know how that happened, but suddenly David was writing what God wanted him to write. And God says, okay, you've confessed. You've been forgiven. Now let's go forward. Let's move on from here. But he says, do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. He's basically saying, don't be dumb. I have forgiven you. Now follow as I lead you forward. May the woes, many of the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad you're righteous. Sing, all of you who are upright in heart. God gives us that compassion, that forgiveness, always. It's not just at one particular point. That same God of compassion is always with us. Because what God is wanting to do is he's wanting to take us through brokenness, through pain, through trouble, and lead us all the way to the place where there is joy and where there is singing. There's a psalm that speaks about that those who sow in tears will go forth with rejoicing. And the interesting factor about that psalm is it's talking about a farmer who all he has left is one little bag of seeds. And he's got a choice. We're going to eat this bag of seeds and satisfy our hunger today. Or I'm going to go out there and sow it. And months from now, we'll bring in a harvest. And then we will eat. And as he goes out, he sows in tears. And as he's sowing in tears, he knows he's doing what must be done in order for them to be 
fed in the future. And so there's that beauty in it as well, that when we go through times of grief, God says, sow your tears. Don't try and hold them back. Let those tears flow because now I can get in and now I can come and I can comfort you. And I love Dallas Willard's words. I'm learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live it if he were I. That Jesus wants to be there with us to walk us through the grief over our own sin and the grief over the broken world that we live in. Let's pray together.